The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. According to the Bible, there are certain things we must grasp if we desire to come into saving faith and knowledge of God and what it means to be a Christian. It's true that, that all of the Christian life doesn't boil down just to doctrine, but uh, it, it is more than that, but it's never less than that. You have to know certain things in order to uh, be a Christian, certain true things. You know, we may go to church, we may give generously to the church, we may re- uh, read our Bible and, and pray, uh, we might even keep a tight check on our attitudes, behaviors, and thoughts, and things like that, and, and kind of even get better in our life of being a better person. Uh, but none of those are capable of making anyone a Christian. The gospel is one thing. It's the good news of God's gracious plan of salvation uh, in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. And yet the gospel has chapters. It's one thing, and yet it has chapters, meaning that it's, it's a story. There's a storyline, a plot line. And, and, and the gospel is presented to us as a, as a story uh, of all that God desires to do in the world and for his people. And possibly no better place in Scripture do we see more clearly what it looks like to, to uh, move through this process of what, a, what is a person, what should they know, what should they feel, what is it like to be a Christian as we confront our sin and God's mercy and his plans for us. Probably no better place than Psalm 51. And here is King David, written by King David, the king of Israel. And in this psalm we'll see, we're going to break it into three parts in this three-part series, just taking one part today. David gives us such a raw and transparent view of what it's supposed to feel like to be uh, someone who grasps salvation, true salvation, true saving faith. David gives us permission to share how we feel, uh, permission to um, be honest. And so I hope it gives us permission to do that as well. It's so good. Uh, This psalm is so good. It's so amazing that once we see it, we'll be able to truly say this, that even the worst of sins or circumstances do not make us too far gone from God's mercy. No matter how bad or corroded or superficial your relationship with God is, it can always be put right. And as we see in this psalm, it doesn't matter how bad you can be, as we see from David and his life and the offenses that he, that he, had, uh, that he made, the sins that he committed. Um, to start, we need some background on this psalm. Uh, it lays the foundation for our brief series. It lays the foundation for this passage. And the more you know about this story of what led to David writing this psalm, the more you'll be able to understand why David is, is saying the things that he is saying. At least it's an entertaining and shocking story. And the story goes like this. Here's what happened. King David's the king of Israel. Uh, his, they are in, their, their nation is engaged in warfare. Uh, his army is off to battle, and on the battlefield, David has stayed back in Jerusalem. One day he goes on the rooftop of his house, and he sees in the distance a beautiful woman bathing on her roof, right? something that we do every day. And she's just bathing on her roof, and, and he commands that she, that she comes. It's Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, one of David's uh, strongest soldiers, that he's off to battle. David commands that she be brought in. He commits adultery with her. He defiles her. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David tries to cover it up. He sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and says, 
Why don't you come home from the battlefield? You've been working very hard and fighting hard. You must be weary. Come home. Eat. Drink. Be happy. Uh, be with your wife. Be intimate with her. Have a great time. You need some rest. He comes home, and he says, how can I eat and drink and party when my friends, my soldiers, my comrades are off at battle? I can't do that. He's a man of integrity, a man of honor, and he won't do that. So he sleeps on his doorstep, doesn't even go into the house. Plan A, busted. Plan B, David continues. David invites Uriah over for dinner and thinks, I'll get, Dave, I'll get Uriah drunk. I'll get him so drunk, and then he, his inhibitions will be kind of broken down and weakened, and he'll go home and then sleep with his wife and get her pregnant, and he'll cover up my sin. Well, he does, and Uriah gets drunk, and then Uriah falls asleep on David's couch. <laughs> Plan B, busted. And so David goes even further into his scheme, and David gives instruction for one of his generals to send Uriah back to battle and position Uriah at the front lines and send them into one of the most dangerous areas of battle. Many men are killed, including Uriah. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. God sees all this as evil and wicked, and God sends a man named Nathan to go confront David. Nathan confronts David in this way. He comes and he says, he says, David, there are two men in a city, one very wealthy man and one very poor man. The wealthy man has thousands of cattle and sheep and is lacking nothing. The poor man has one little baby lamb, and this little baby lamb he treats uh, like a daughter. That's what the scripture says. He, he loves this little lamb. He, he sleeps with this lamb in his arms. He plays with the lamb. His children play with the lamb, and they, they enjoy each other. They are like a little family, and his pride and joy is this little baby you. And a rich man comes into the town, and this, this, other, this rich man wants to throw a party and wants to uh, pr provide a wonderful meal. And instead of taking one of his own, one of his thousands of cattle for the dinner, he takes this little baby lamb from this poor man, slaughters it, serves it up with a little mint chutney. You know, that, that's, that's not in the scripture. But he, you know, he, he provides this meal and takes this little lamb. David hears this, and he's outraged. He says, who would do such a thing? This man deserves death. That would take the only thing that this poor man had. He deserves death for doing such a wicked thing. And he should, he should have to repay four times of what he took. And Nathan, so winsomely and directly, looks at the king and he says, you are that man. Psalm 51 is David's response to these circumstances. Psalm 51 is David's response to this confrontation and conviction of sin. And so now as we look at this psalm, hopefully you see it with fresh eyes. You see a man who has been not only caught, confronted, convicted, and grieves his sin. And now he is writing this very public and transparent display of what is going on in his heart. And for us, it shows us exactly what it feels like to be a Christian. What it feels like to know God, to, to grieve our sin, to feel sorrow over it. What it feels like to be convicted. What it feels like to change. What it feels like to respond to God's confrontation. Now as we begin unpacking David's response, let me tell you exactly what we're going to look at today for the first of these three parts. Here it is. Unless we appropriately admit our sinfulness, 
it is impossible to truly grasp the good news of salvation. Unless we appropriately admit our sinfulness, our sinfulness, it's impossible to truly grasp the good news of salvation. David grieves his actions. He takes a long look at himself and he's crushed with sorrow over them and he turns from sin to God for help, crying out for mercy. And that's exactly what we must do if we desire to take hold of God's gift of salvation. You may say, well, that is completely appropriate response for David. I mean, look at what he has done. What a horrible man. No one would condone such behavior or actions. In one day, look at what he has done. He's coveted another man's wife. He has committed adultery, likely through rape, or at least through a very evil abuse of power. And finally, premeditated murder. He should admit his sinfulness. If there is sin, this is what it looks like. But we can't look at Psalm 51 as a story of one man's experience. That's not what it's meant for. Psalm 51 describes for us God's only way of salvation for everyone. Because God created us to enjoy him, to adore him, to love others. By living the way that we were called to live, we would have lived life completely satisfied and in peace and enjoyed a perfect world. But instead, the whole of human, human race rebelled against God, turned away from him, against his authority, and instead of living for God and for our neighbor, we live lives of self-centeredness. And the result of this rebellion against God is brokenness in every area of life. Uh, physically, psychologically, emotionally, relationally, brokenness everywhere. Everything good that God has, been, has created is now broken and under the curse of sin because of our choice to not choose God, to not obey God. And David's response is our only way out of it. The Bible provides one way out of this, this place that we have found ourselves, one way out of the place that David has found himself. I'll highlight two things in these first few verses that were read today that, that we need to know to truly grasp the good news of salvation. The first is a godly sorrow over the sin, and the second is the gift, the gift of confrontation. Let's look at the first, godly sorrow over sin. What is that? What is godly sorrow? Does it mean that we feel remorse, regret over what we have done? Well, not exactly. Even unbelievers uh, can feel remorse over what they have done, so that can't be it. Does it mean feeling guilty and really wanting to be better? No, of course not. It's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's very possible to feel guilty when you're not and to not feel guilty when you are. There's such a thing as false guilt, Right? You ever felt bad for something that you shouldn't feel bad for? And so guilt even isn't an indicator that we have the right kind of feeling about our sin. So what is it? What's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? One leads to saving faith and the other does not. I'll give some examples of how we might express worldly sorrow in our life in a, in a bit. But first I want to look at David's response so we can see what it looks like. Characteristics of godly Sorrow. Here is the heart of David's confession. Have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David gives us a picture of what this looks like. Let's focus on these three. I highlighted three kind of phrases in this confession for us. First, he acknowledges his transgression. He acknowledges that he's sinned, but what is it? What is sin? 
It's a transgression. Transgression is rebellion. It's, it means an uprising against authority. Some translations, maybe yours, has words like debts or trespasses. You know, I, I've trespassed on accident. I have fallen into debt, uh, not willingly. That's not what this is talking about. David doesn't just admit that he did something wrong. He admits that he asserted himself against God's will in order to do what ultimately he just wanted to do. David here knows. He's like, I know what I should have done, and I didn't want to do what you wanted me to do. I wanted to do ultimately what I wanted to do, and I did exactly what I wanted to do. That's a transgression. That's a rebellion. Ultimately against your authority in my life. I didn't want to do what you want to do. I didn't want to follow what you said, and so I didn't. True, godly sorrow requires that we take an honest look at ourselves and become convinced that we have, in fact, chosen our way over God's way. It requires that we look into our heart and say, yeah, I've done what I wanted, even when I knew that this isn't what God has asked me to do. That's true godly sorrow. It's a part of godly sorrow. Take an honest look at yourself. If we desire to have godly sorrow over the sin in our life that leads to saving faith and really grasping the gift of salvation for us, we must first stop and take an honest look at our life. Isn't it amazing that David could do such horrible things, knowing him, knowing his history, knowing God's call on his life? This is the same guy who killed Goliath. This is the same guy who is least among his fathers that God chose. This is the same man that God said, this is a man after my own heart who will be king for my people, who will lead my people in righteousness, who will lead my people into the pleasure and plans that I have for them. Isn't it amazing that David could fall into such horrible things? And, and not, just, not just how horrible, but isn't it amazing that he can just simply move on from that? A lot of time passes. I mean, Bathsheba knew she was pregnant without an ultrasound. Time passed. How much time? I don't know exactly. But time went on, and David seemed to move on with his life. Adultery, rape, murder. Move on with your life. How could that happen for David? How is it possible? It's possible because of this. All of us are capable of letting sin rule our hearts if we simply never stop to take an honest look at our lives. This is what happened to David. And this is how this happens for every single one of us. We can do this. We can fall. How does a good person, seemingly good person, fall into such horrible things without remorse? We're all capable of it. And all you have to do is stop being honest about what's going on inside of you. Stop looking at your heart. Stop looking at your emotions, your dreams, your desires. Stop looking at what you want. Stop looking at what God has asked of you. And this is what happens. We're capable of being like David in this way. It's so uncomfortable to slow down and to ask ourselves, what kind of life am I living and is this the life God has called me to live? Anybody want to do that? I don't want to do that. It's really uncomfortable. That's what you made me do on my sabbatical. <laughs> what are the things that you're, that, ask yourself this, what are the things that my mind wanders to 
when I get to think about anything I get to think about? What hopes and dreams do I entertain? What passions go unchecked? What attitudes are unwise and reckless in my life that I am giving myself to? What habits am I engaged in? What books am I reading? What people am I listening to? What, mu what is the music that I listen to doing to my communion with God? What, option, what, what opinions and influences are most important in my decision-making in my life? Whose influence and whose opinion do I listen to most? Are you asking yourself these questions? It's uncomfortable to take an honest look at our life. And it is part of our fallen human nature to come up with hundreds of strategies to avoid asking questions just like these. We are skilled at it. David does it. How do you do it? What strategies do you use to avoid being honest with what's going on in your life? Let me ask you a simple question, maybe, maybe not so simple. Nothing, nothing I do is simple. What kind of life are you living? What kind of life are you living? The first call from God to us is to be honest. That's the first call in this passage, is to be honest. To stop arguing with ourselves, to stop arguing but examine ourselves, and if we do, we will see that we have much to confess, much to repent of, much, many strategies that we have used to avoid honestly looking at our lives and confronting God with who we are. The first call to God, from God to you, is will you be honest? Will you be honest with yourself? You know what's going on. You know what you desire. You know what passions have captivated your heart. And you know what God is inviting you into. What strategies do you use to avoid an honest look at God? Get lost in work. That's a popular one. Get lost in a TV series. Get lost in the Bible. What? It's possible to avoid God and an honest look at our heart by just getting lost in theology. I don't, have, I don't have to look at myself if I just keep looking at God. It's a strategy that's not good. If I just talk to God all the time, I don't have to talk to myself. Always be in the loop of what's happening with others. Who's got time to worry about your own life when you're just worried about everybody else's? Anybody struggle with that? I'm always talking about what's going on with everyone else. I don't stop and actually talk about what's going on with me. We are master escape artists when it comes to taking an honest look at ourselves. David struggled with it, and so do we. We're all capable of doing it. Let's look at the second phrase. My sin is ever before me. David sees his sin not as an isolated action, not as an isolated instant. He, does, he doesn't say, oh, that was so bad. I totally agree. I really shouldn't have done that. But rather, he sees it as a condition of his soul, a condition of his soul before God, the heart that has been awakened to see themselves as they truly are, does not see themselves as a person who makes mistakes from time to time. 
but a person who's born in sin, conceived in sin, as David says. My mother bore me in sin. This is a condition of my soul. I am broken. I am, I am under a curse. I haven't just done wicked things. I'm a wicked person. Godly sorrow over sin does not treat God like a landlord who comes in for an inspection. And we say, okay, he's coming, tidy up, make some you know, humble confessions. Oh, sorry the place is so filthy. We'll, we'll definitely get better at that. And then as soon as he leaves, we just go right back to the way we were living. Right? So many of us will admit that we're kind of like that. It's like, yeah, there's some things that I need to get, you know, if God were to show up, there's some things that I'd be guilty of. How many of us would say, I was born in sin, my mother conceived me in sin. My sin is ever before me. The constant awareness of my complete and utter brokenness is always on my mind. Some of us might say, yeah, there's some things I wish I could change and get better. That's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, see, gospel sorrow is an ever-present awareness of our sinful desire to take the cookie from the cookie jar when we've been told not to. Worldly sorrow is the child who feels bad when mom and dad find out. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow says, I have this desire in me to disobey mom and dad, and I know that about myself, and it troubles me greatly. Worldly sorrow gets caught and says, I promise I won't do that again. Do you see the difference? Finally, godly sorrow knows the essence of our sin, looking at this third part. Against you, you only have I sinned and does what is evil in your sight. He does not say, I've, I, I've sinned in my sight. That's not the person I want to be. He, says, I, he doesn't say, I've sinned in my friend's sight. I've really let down my friends. I've, really, you know, I've let down Uriah. I've let down my family. He doesn't say, I, I've sinned against in my culture's sight. You know, this isn't really making myself to be a good citizen I'm, I'm sending people into battles that they shouldn't be in. He doesn't say, I've sinned in my parents' sight. He says, I've sinned in your sight. I've sinned in God's sight. He's not saying, I didn't offend anybody else but God. He is saying, ultimately, my offense is against God, a rebellion against him. He knows the essence of his sin. This is the essential difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. We realize that our sins are not simply bad actions that we need to change they are primarily offenses against God and him alone. Why should we feel this way? Let me, let me put it this way. Sin is not simply doing things we should not do, but a distortion of God's character and a twisting of his good purposes in the world. Sin is not simply things that we should not do. It is a cosmic offense against the creator of all things. Holy God. Sin is squaring up before God, squaring up before him, the holy God of the universe, and calling him cruel and unwise. That's what sin is. I know better. I'm going to do it my way. And David knows that. And he admits it. Now, I told you, here are some ways we might express some worldly sorrow. Let me give you several examples here, comparing them to what David says. 
I was really uncomfortable. Given the circumstances, I'm not sure I had any other choice. Have mercy on me, O oh God. I'm a sinner. I just needed to blow off a little steam. I've worked really hard and I deserve this. Have mercy on me, O oh God. A sinner. Another one is, I'm trying to be better. I know it's probably not best, but... You ever seen that before? Which one are we on? I tried it God's way and things didn't get any better. I tried to do things the way he wanted and my life didn't get any better. Have mercy on me, O oh God. A sinner. Let's do another one. Oh yeah, sorry, that's my fault. I've done things I'm not, how about that one? I've done things I'm not proud of, but I'm not as bad as I could be. Have mercy on me, O oh God, for I am a sinner. Oh yeah, sorry, I skipped a bunch. Sorry, Adam, you're doing great, man. Let's, let's go back. God loves me. He knows that this is a struggle for me. But ultimately, I believe he forgives me and wants me to be happy. Have mercy on me, O oh God, for I am a sinner. Those were different times, and people's views were different. I was young and foolish. Have mercy on me, O oh God, for I am a sinner. Have you considered seeing things from my perspective for a change? Have mercy on me, O oh God, for I am a sinner. The last one. Is the last one? Yeah, but what does that word really mean in the Greek? <laughs> yeah. I get this more than you think. More than you think. Yeah, but what does that really mean in the Greek? You're a sinner. Have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. David shows us the only way. And he also confronts all of our ideas of the worldly sorrow, that we, our strategies that we use, the, the tricks that we use, the excuses that we use, the half confessions that we express. Yeah, I may be bad, but I'm working on myself. David doesn't do any of that. You know, to David's credit, he doesn't, as soon as he is confronted, he is a broken man, confesses his sin, and he does it in a right way. What's the primary difference between worldly sorrow, godly sorrow? I hope you're starting to see it. And how, could you, how can you know if your sorrow is godly or worldly? I want to give you a diagnosis here, a diagnostic tool. One response is always directed towards self, as we saw in those examples, and the other response is always directed towards God. One cares only for the personal cost to ourselves. The other cares about our offense against God and any cost of what it means for us. Do you feel that it's hard for you when you read Scripture and you see God's condemnation of sin? Does it make you feel uncomfortable, maybe even how I'm talking about it today? Does it make you feel like, gosh, this is really 
this is kind of tough. I mean, do we really need to be this dramatic? Do you feel that God's being a little too strict? That David is being a little uh, over the top uh, or dramatic when it comes to sin? I mean, come on, shouldn't we just relax a little bit? I mean, Jesus is alive and he loves us. Should we just relax and kind of move on? We've all made mistakes. Do you feel that God would be treating you unfairly if you found yourself in hell one day because even though you've made mistakes in life, you just don't think that you're the kind of person that deserves to be there. I would say that the test of godly sorrow is this. That having looked at yourself and at your own heart, you would say to yourself, I deserve nothing but God's judgment. And if God condemns me for eternity, I would not have a single complaint against him. Can you say that? Do you think that's unjust? Do you think that's unreasonable? This is the only way to godly sorrow. Because this is the condition that all of us find ourselves in. If any single thing happens to me that is unfavorable, what offense do we have to God? None. We have no offense. For God is holy and we are sinful. Wouldn't it be cruel if I ended right now? <laughs> Wouldn't it be cruel if I ended the sermon right now? Maybe not. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna end. Where's the good news? You know, here's this little thing: as you're reading scripture and you're reading your Bible and you're wondering, like, how do I find the good news in scripture, even in really tough passages like this? Here's a quick little tool: ask yourself this: Where? What is God doing? How is God acting? Because wherever you see God, you will see good news. Wherever you see him working and acting, you're going to see good news. How will things be put right? Where is our hope for the one who sees their own sin? Where is the hope for David, for you? Well, it's in God sending a man to bring good news. And the good man that God sends is Nathan. You thought I was going to say Jesus. Uh, we'll get to him in a second. But this is, this is really, this is part of the story. God sends Nathan. Uh, look at, this is, let's now go to the passage where this story happens in 2 Samuel, and I'll read this for you in chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband, and when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The story could have ended very differently, and I want you to see this. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and David lived the rest of his life in torment in the consequence of his sin. That's how the story could have gone, but it doesn't go that way. And the thing David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And God sent someone to convict him, to expose him, and to invite him to repentance. Nathan called David to repentance, to confess his sin, to take an honest look at his heart, to cry out for God's mercy, to turn to God and his steadfast love. Repentance is admitting our sin as God sees it, turning to the only hope 
that we have, which is God himself. As clear as David is confronted with his sin, he is also clearly reminded of God's promise of his love and his mercy. He pleads with God in our passage in verse 1 to 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David says, blot out my sin. Not simply, please forgive me of this horrible thing I have done. Do you see the difference? David is using blot out this. He's talking about like taking this dirty bowl that's just filthy. And he says, wipe it completely clean until there is absolutely no trace of filth inside of it. Make it sparkle. No guilt would remain, but be completely removed. Nathan is paving the way for one who would come later to finally bring completion to this prayer so that it will ultimately happen for David and for anyone who repents of their sin and turns to the, the, the steadfast love of God. Nathan is paving the way for Jesus. God looks upon our sin and our guilt, and instead of turning a deaf ear and a blind eye to our suffering, he sends Jesus. The story in 2 Samuel 11, we could put ourselves in there. And the thing that you have done displeased the Lord. So God sent his only son to die for us. The thing that you did grieved the Lord. He saw your heart as wicked. Your sin is ever before you. And he doesn't leave us there. He sends Jesus. The incarnation of Christ, God looks at the world as it was, and he had pity on his people, and he placed himself into our suffering. Not only did he come to us, he substituted himself for us. God would never be satisfied if David said, my bad, the whole adultery and rape and deceiving and murder thing, I'm truly sorry, but it's good that you are a loving and forgiving God. He'd say, doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. God demand, demanded punishment. And in, in order to spare us, he received Jesus in our place on the cross, the rejection and condemnation that you and I deserve. And David is pleading for this, not knowing exactly how God would answer his cries for mercy. But God knowing starts with a taking an honest look at ourselves, confessing our sins, repenting of our sin, turning from sin, turning to the promise of God, and seeing that God demands punishment still, even though he is a loving God, he is a just judge and Sins will not go unpunished, and so he receives the punishment of Jesus in our place. That's how Jesus makes it right. But how can we be made right? That's how Jesus makes it right and satisfies God. How can we be made right? Through faith. Only through faith. By faith in Jesus, our sins can be forgiven and we can be assured of the hope that awaits us, that God has, has washed us clean, that he has wiped the bowl and no blemish remains, and one day we will be completely free from the torment and the temptation and the burden of sin. 
in our life. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but life forever with God. Faith does not mean that we believe in Jesus and then simply just try harder to be what he's asked us to be. Saving faith is transferring our trust away from ourselves and placing our trust in Jesus. It means saying, God, accept me not because of what I have done or ever will do, but accept me because of what Jesus has done in my place. The gospel is not something that we do for ourselves to be forgiven. It's something God has done for us. David knew that this would be his hope. Do you hear him pleading, have mercy on me? My only hope is if you do something for me. There is nothing that I can do to restore our relationship. The gospel, David knew that this hope was not going to be found in the amount of work that he did, but in God's work for him. Have you taken a close look at your life? Now take a close look at Jesus. See him crucified for you. See him calling you to repentance. The first word, the first phrase out of his mouth as he began ministry was repent for the kingdom of God is here. Here's the answer. Here is your hope. To trust in the unfailing love of God to take an honest look at our need for him. And he calls you to faith. He calls you not to simply emotional certainty of like, I feel better that he loves me and cares for me. But he calls you to act upon your will to place your trust in him and to rest in him. You can give yourself completely to him because he has given yourself, himself completely to you.